0: Welcome to the Tax Girl podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Erb, Tax Girl. I'm a tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers and tax practitioners like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. According to the Taxpayer Advocate, as of September 11, 2021, there were about 17.6 million tax returns awaiting processing, and the IRS anticipates receiving over 4 million more returns that are on extension in October. The delay has resulted in a lot of frustrated taxpayers, especially those that are grappling with error notices and being charged penalties and interest for alleged mistakes, and those penalties add up. For the fiscal year 2020, the IRS assessed nearly 31.4 billion with the B in civil penalties. Of that, more than 14 billion was assessed in civil penalties on individual and estate and trust income tax returns. But are those penalties fair, and are there defenses or claims that can get taxpayers out of those penalties? Mm-hmm. To talk about penalties generally, I've asked Andrew Gradman to the show. Andrew is a tax lawyer in Los Angeles, specializing in transactional matters. He is the principal at the law office of Andrew L. Gradman. He received his BA from Stanford University, his JD from Columbia University, and his tax LLM and business certificate from NYU. He is admitted to the bar in California and Nevada. Thank you so much, Andrew, for being on the show today. Thank you. So, one of the penalties that taxpayers are probably most familiar with right after failure to pay is IRC 6662. That's an accuracy-related penalty. So can you tell us what that means and why it
1: exists? Absolutely. And you opened in a good way by starting with those statistics, because I think until this year, a lot of taxpayers wouldn't have given thought to tax penalties because they've been good citizens, they've turned in their taxes on time and had their returns filed, and their professionals have helped them do that. This is the first occasion for many people when they're getting these notices due to the backlog at the IRS that they're exposed to the underside of the iceberg, which from the professional side of things, I tend to think penalties are really the heart of the tax law. I mean, we have a tax system in our country based on Mm self-assessment and unlike for other countries where there's a great deal of withholding. And so the luxury that you have, sort of the cost of that is to have penalties to keep people in in line. you've asked about, I'll start with people, maybe people think about Penalties for late payment, late filing—that's the one that they're pesters them about—and they don't pay it because they get their things on time. Pretty straightforward. The penalty you refer to, the accuracy-related penalty, has a, a long history. You know, a lot of changes since the '80s. The, you know, the, the golden years of being a tax lawyer, mm-hmm. so to speak, when penalties were abundant and and everything could be gotten away with. And then they started what came to be our current regime of penalties, and it reflects the fact that we have a very complicated tax system. We have a tax system which is not only used to collect revenue, but it's used to subsidize various important activities in the form of tax expenditures. We have a lot of taxpayers; all the information is in the hands of the taxpayers. And so, the accuracy-related penalty is there for a sort of a the more sharp kinds of abuses. Let's say not merely late filing or late paying, but for reporting your taxes on a number lower than they should be. Mm-hmm. 6662 and 6663 are the which is fraud 60, the latter one is fraud are the sole penalties in the code that do relate to the, that under reporting because it has a potential to be pernicious to be done for bad reasons you'll see some penalties in there which target bad actors
0: but you don't have to have intent though for these which I think is really interesting because I do think that when I talk to taxpayers and I know your world is a little different on the transactional side but when I talk to taxpayers, they sometimes take umbrage with the idea that it wasn't on purpose, right? Like I just lost it to 99 or something. So there's no intent required to have an accuracy related penalty, which I think surprises a lot of taxpayers.
1: Yeah. In preparing for this show and reading some articles, I've heard these accuracy related penalties characterized as strict liability penalties. Now, one of the articles commenters pointed out that because these can be defeated, by showing, as, as you were asking about how do you defeat these, you can defeat them with reasonable cause and good faith reliance on it. That in a sense, they are not truly strict liability because they can de- be defeated with with the right mindset. But it absolutely, I think not only are you, are you correct that it, it's generally not a good idea to go into a transaction relying solely on your if you know ahead of time that you're going to be relying on your good faith I have to wonder how good your faith is (laughs) but also problems of evidence come up it's hard to prove you know you have the burden to prove your mental state unless it's fraud and so it's effectively a strict liability penalty especially one of these for what they call substantial I mean I'm going to dive right into one of these if I can sure substantial understatement that is a penalty that on its face is just calculated you get that penalty by having a number on your return, which is X percent lower than it should be, generally 10%. If there's a version with 5% for 199 Cap A, but we won't go into that. So that's strict liability. to be defeated with reasonable cause and good faith, though. I'll go through some of the other penalties and then I'll turn to the defense. Okay. The other common penalties, um, we're not gonna get into an overstatement of pension liabilities today. Sorry. <laughs> there's like
0: one listener out there who's very disappointed.
1: <laughs> yeah. But the biggies are uh, negligence and disregard of rules and regulations. Mm-hmm. Disregard of rules and regulations can be in, in itself negligent. It can be reckless and it can be uh, intentional. And the penalty, sixty-six, sixty-two. the way it works is, generally speaking, every tax, every penalty, it's sort of a base times a rate. So let's start with the, the base for this penalty. It is the underpayment, but the underpayment attributable to the, to the wrongdoing. So if you have an underpayment of a million dollars, but only you know 100,000 of it is attributable to the wrongdoing, the penalty will only be on that 100,000. That's actually a an innovation in recent decades. There was once a time when we didn't do that, and then they fixed that because it's lousy to not have it that way. Sure. And the rate is generally 20%, but it can become 40%. This penalty calculated on that underpayment in the cases of uh, gross valuation misstatements. This reflects the fact that A lot of tax shelters and a lot of abusive behaviors take advantage of the ease with which one can manipulate the value of an asset. And so they want to throw in that steeper penalty to deter that kind of behavior. And uh, as relevant here, the other is what they call a non-disclosed, non-economic substance transaction. Now, I may sound obscure, and I don't want to go into it too much for most people, but I spend a lot of time thinking about that because a lot of when people come up with really crazy ideas and then they come to me and say, is this going to work? I have to think about that particular non-economic substance because a lot of transactions, which are devised for the purpose of saving taxes, have as their Achilles heel that they lack economic substance. They were not put together to make someone money for reasons other than tax savings. Right. Other than the 40% penalty I've described, we're talking about a 20% penalty. And I've I've described the rate, I've described the base, I've described negligence and disregarded rules and regulations and and some of the other principal penalties so i could turn to the ways of getting out of them now if you'd like
0: yeah well before you go there i have one question i think that folks wonder about negligence so i think negligence you know we kind of have an idea generally about like what is negligent behavior but how might that apply to taxes because i think that again when i talk to clients they're very keyed in on we think about fair a lot right when we talk about taxes and so they think about the things that they do that are purposeful so you know you make up a deduction right so i'm going to say that i have an education expense when there was none so that's very clear that that was purposeful right but what would be an example of something that's negligent
1: so let me start with the rule and then i'll give you an example so they define negligence trevreg 1.6662-3 little b tells you what negligence is it's a failure to make a reasonable attempt so We've substituted one jargon for another. Mm-hmm. A reasonable attempt to meet the internal revenue laws or to exercise ordinary and reasonable care in the preparation of a tax return. And it also negligence by the taxpayer can also include failure to keep adequate books and records, or to substantiate items properly. That second little bullet there is, is interesting because you may have done everything right, but you know you went out and had lunch with someone but didn't write on the back of the receipt that you had lunch with so-and-so attorney and you didn't keep that record, that in and of itself is negligent because they've defined it to be that way. Mm-hmm. They go on to tell you where negligence is strongly indicated. It's strongly indicated where whenever a taxpayer fails to include on an income tax return, an amount of income which was shown on an information return. So if you get a, a K-1 and it tells you, you know, you're know, you supposed to report something, and, or if you get a 1099, and then you omit that from your return, that is strong evidence of negligence. Other examples, if the taxpayer fails to make a reasonable attempt to ascertain the correctness of a deduction, credit, or exclusion, or if they if a reasonable and prudent person would perceive it to be too good to be true under the circumstance. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Because because a lot of people would love to be able to pull the wool over their eyes and say, I just behaved, but the too good to be true thing, I often think gets a lot of people. Because a lot of things are too good to be true. And I think you have to be alert to that. You can't use some, you know, if you get a windfall or a perceived windfall, and if you perceive it as a windfall, you, you have to sort of double check and say, hmm, I wonder why I sold a million dollar building with a zero dollar basis and got it to 99 for zero dollars in tax. So you should pursue that. Right. There's some other examples uh, as well, but I think those are good illustrations.
0: Yeah, no, thanks. That's what I think that's really helpful. So you mentioned earlier that there's ways that you can Fight these, right? So, what would be an example or a strategy that you could use if you got a notice for a penalty and you don't think that it's fair? And again, I'm going to say fair a lot because I do think as a society, taxpayers like to think about what's fair. So, if you think it's not fair, what do you do?
1: Yeah. And I think you're right to phrase it that way. Going back to the system we live in, the tax law is inordinately complex. And these penalties have been crafted by the legislature and by Treasury to respect the fact that it is not fair to ask people to be perfect every time when we have this gargantuan and uh, perplexing tax law. So the carve-outs, I guess for fun, I wanna go backwards and say, when when can you never get out of something? If you have one of those non-economic substance transactions. So that's what keeps me awake at at night because that's the one transaction which you can't do reasonable cause, you can't do good faith, you can't do substantial authority or reasonable basis. That is truly a strict liability penalty. Mm And so I lie awake at night asking whether the transaction has economic substance, but now let's get to real life problems. So all of the other penalties can be defeated by reasonable cause and good faith. I don't think it would be accurate to call that a subjective standard because I believe all sort of like tort law, what's a reasonable person there. They're not asking what were you thinking? They were asking what would a reasonable person in your shoes reasonably think, mm-hmm. but it, it definitely the reasonable cause of good faith definitely does ask what kind of stuff would be going through your mind. And so here are some things that might be relevant, although not always. Suppose there was a, a Q&A, frequently asked questions on the IRS website. Those are not binding authority. But maybe if as an individual, you read one of those things and said, oh, it seems to cover my facts, maybe you could argue that even though you were wrong, maybe that would be your your form of reasonable cause and good
0: faith. Oh, so see, now you have stumbled into, unaware, I'm sure, stumbled into one of my big grievances with the IRS website, because you did mention, rightly, that you cannot rely on the FAQs. Have you ever heard of, and I cannot say yes, have you ever heard of a taxpayer successfully arguing that the IRS website led them down this path that wasn't fair and resulted in this penalty because I think that the IRS has even said on their own and they've said it on their website that you can't rely on. I mean they don't say it where it should be said, but they have said it in other contexts. The IRS has, has said that it's not it's not proper authority. So have you heard of and I don't know, I mean maybe someone else who's listening may have heard, but
1: I think the reason that jumped into my mind is because my understanding is it's an open question which is being talked about a lot lately because there were so many few, uh, frequently asked questions arising out of coronavirus.
0: I mean, I think it should be, to be clear, like lest anyone oh, send negative yeah. emails, I think it should be. But I do think that the IRS typically takes the position that it's not authority, which kind of leads us and not to take you off track, but kind of leads us into a bigger question of the IRS is the person who's making uh, until you get to court, right? The IRS is the one making this the determination early on as to whether or not this was reasonable. That's who's looking at that reasonable standard is the IRS. And the IRS in that particular instance is the one who gave you that information.
1: Let me play devil's advocate, not because I disagree with you, but because I think people would want to appreciate why this isn't an easy question. First of all, Judge Kaczynski, formerly Ninth Circuit Judge Kaczynski, there was a similar movement to allow people to rely on non-precedential cases Mm -hmm. that were issued in those courts. And he said why would we let them do that? Those were the cases that were written by my intern. And um, I don't want those to become, or by my clerk or whatever. Uh-huh. And the IRS, their position on this is that they need to have the flexibility to issue statements quickly, things that are probably right, but could later be wrong. I will say, having said all this, the first time this ever hit my radar was when I was reading a, an article by Rob Wood, which turned into a, an exchange of letters and tax notes. And someone corrected Rob Wood by saying, hey frequently asked questions aren't law. And he wrote back, thank you for pointing that out. And he said, I would say that if it ever came to litigation, he said, I bet that that would be the point at which the law changes and when a court will, will hold that it is law. And that impressed me because I tend to think he's right. The IRS can say it's not law, but the first day it comes into court, a tax court judge is probably not going to be very sympathetic to that position. I think there actually has been a case on this.
0: Yeah, I will look it up later. And if I can find it, I will put it in the show notes for folks. The reason it's in my brain is because we had a very lively discussion about this with respect to the stimulus checks. When you mentioned earlier about COVID relief, that is 100% why this is in front of people right now. Um, There were similar discussions when people were really, really angry about the ever-changing OBDP rules, which were also phrased as FAQs um, on the website. But um, I know with respect to stimulus checks and you know whether or not you have to return them for decedents and whether or not incarcerated persons can keep them and all of these things. And then the incarcerated persons is an example of where the IRS did say a thing and then took it back. There was a lot of discussion. And I seem to recall someone putting something on social about it being a case. But if I, if I come across it, I'll put it in the show notes. But, um, but we'll pretend that that little bit, we'll save that one for the follow-up show. <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah, right. but it, it is but the overarching issue though is, you know, who gets to pick what is considered reasonable. And so your position is
1: what. So while we were talking, I pulled this up. I got on this tangent because we were talking reasonable cause and good faith. That is also defined. So you asked who gets to decide. The answer is treasury decides. Treasury one point six 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 four dash four. And they give some more examples. I'm not gonna read them because it's gonna sound obvious. Reason it's gonna use the word reasonable in there a lot. You can, <laughs> sure. But I think I think where this takes where I would like to take this is to the role of tax opinions in this whole process. OK, not only are, are tax opinions of one relevant way that a taxpayer might show that they had reasonable cause and good faith, but there is another defense to some of the other penalties, a defense to the negligence penalty, a defense to the substantial underpayment of tax penalty, I believe, and made, and, and, and others for a thing called reasonable Basis, which is different, even though it starts with the word reasonable. This now we're not talking about the influences on the taxpayer's decision making. The taxpayer may have willfully engaged in the transaction, knowing, thinking it was wrong, but much to his chagrin, it was lawful, (laughs) because, (laughs) and that's what we're getting at now. If 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 the taxpayer, if the position was supportable by a reasonable basis, and if there's another standard related to this called substantial authority, which is more strict, then the opinion that a, ta- a client may hire a tax attorney to write may be used for both of these purposes either to show reasonable cause and good faith i.e. that the taxpayer influences on his life that that led him to think this was okay mm-hmm. or the opinion will set forth the legal reasons why this is a kind of a kind of quasi valid position and the irs might take that into account as well that's what the opinions are for what i would say is uh, a lot of people spend time talking about the different standards, you know, sort of you go on a spectrum from right to left. It's often the best is will, and then there's should, and then there's more likely than not. And then there's substantial authority, and then there's reasonable basis. And then there's like, uh, (laughs) I don't know if if we ever get to beyond a reasonable, the opposite of beyond a reasonable doubt, but it gets gets pretty ridiculous as we go further. Mm -hmm. These are often conveyed in percentage terms. So even on the IRS website, I think they reflect these, and I have them here. Yeah, it's on the statements of standards for tax services, IRS nation, nationwide tax forms. So will is generally 90% or greater probability should is 70 to 80. I want to say that if, if there's one thing that I'm willing to get on a horse about and ride from town to town and be called crazy about, it's that I think the notion of assigning percentages to these things is kind of ridiculous. It doesn't mean anything to me. From, like, what is the experiment that we're repeating? And what variables are we changing from experiment to experiment? So I try to avoid, I mean, even, I mean, there's a more, I mean, I think what happens is there's a more likely than not penalty. Treasury has said there's such a thing as saying greater than 50% likelihood of success. And then with substantial authority, they say, well, it doesn't have to be as stringent as more likely than not. So now we can infer that that's less than 50%. And then people go from there and they populate their whole. You know, Tolkien esque universe with all these different numbers. I don't think we should. T- I think Treasury shouldn't have done that. The standards are defined in, in the regs, should has a definition. It means it's based on the authorities. I, I'm going to paraphrase this, but the, the authorities which are supported are sort of more convincing than the ones that don't, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. That's the only meaningful statement. And in fact, when Congress chose the phrase substantial authority as a matter of like legislative history, they chose a phrase that had no historical precedent, that had never been used before, because they didn't want it to be contaminated by association with any other standard. And it sort of reflects, these standards were meant to sort of evolve of their own, but to, to sign number, I mean, I could talk more about the number thing, but, but then I'm going to be that guy riding down the town. And... <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, I think the, the interesting thing about the numbers, like if they're doing a percentage is what does that mean to a normal taxpayer? Like, I think it means to somebody who would sit around and be really thoughtful about what the words mean which is you know what what people pay tax practitioners to do but real taxpayers like were you 40% likely to believe you know that this particular action would result in penalty or or however they they use the percentages i think that that is not as helpful as they
1: might think what i'd say is i mean people understand what it means to roll a dice and have one out of six and you know i could and there's a whole lot of assumptions that go into the statement there's a one-sixth probability of rolling a one, and people are, are you know, making those assumptions. We're, we're assuming that we're ignorant about a whole lot of things, and that in lieu of knowing the facts, we're going to insert randomness rather than the facts. Okay, that's what, that's what we're doing. Now, look, I will say that if you are a CEO of a company and you are asking, tell me, people want what they call um, expected values of things. So I have this litigation. What's the value if I win? What's the value if I lose? And what are the probabilities? Give me 100 of these different litigations. We're going to put them in buckets. And then I'm going to put that on my financial statement. By the way, if you're if you're uh, giving advice for financial projections purposes, you're allowed to mention the likelihood of, of audit. Uh, I believe under like the financial accounting standards, you're allowed to take that into account because it would be meaningless if you were a CEO of a company and you weren't told the likelihood of audit. What, what's the point of this information if I can't put that? that multiplier in. Of course, as people advising taxpayers before treasury, we were bound by circular 230. I'm not allowed to give written advice to a client which advises them as to the likelihood of audit mm-hmm. or the likelihood of an issue coming up on audit. So it means I only give it over the phone. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do that. But every, every everyone knows that audits have some low probability and they take it into their own account. But you know, going back to that comment about the rolling of the dice, the reason you can't I believe you can't analogize that to case to, to litigation. It's just because the factors are, are much too complicated. I was thinking about this before the podcast. Suppose a case comes out yesterday, which is somewhat relevant to the matter I'm being asked about. So that could give me some insight into the psychology of the people who are doing the audits and the IRS policy. And now the existence of that case, how does that change? What otherwise would have been my assessment? Do I think if it's a bad case for you, do I think that they're going to be harder on cases like yours, or do I think that they've drawn the line and this represents a boundary they won't go no further than? I think this is a long way of simply saying this is a too complex question for any human to answer. You can't come to me and ask me the probability of a case being decided a certain way. No amount of education and insight could possibly give me a valid answer. Now, people give answers like that, they make them up. That's my opinion. They make up the answers. <laughs> sure. And then something happens. Either the case is decided favorably or unfavorably. <laughs> you know, it turns out it was either the truth was either it was 100% chance or a 0% chance. But of course, we didn't know that at the time. And are they going to get sued? I want to give a, a shout out to an article by uh, Heather Field called Tax Lawyers as Tax Insurance. Every time I'm asked to present on some matter relating to tax practice, I read articles by Heather Field and they're directly on point. And this article is is really on point on the subject of, you know, what what is the value of these tax opinions? She reflects on that to some degree, client imagines that in some circumstances, they could seek indemnification from the writer of the opinion in the form of a malpractice suit. Whether that is something that could materialize is, is arguable, and it, it doesn't happen as often as one might think. But I can assure you, if you're a, a tax professional writing the opinion, you in your back of your mind, you think it's going to happen every time. So you know, you're influenced in writing them as though there were such a regime. And these are arguments she makes in her paper. And
0: if you send me that link, I'll be sure to put that also in the show notes. I think folks would be interested. Yeah.
1: Terrific. I'll I'll definitely do that.
0: That does raise an interesting question. I do think a lot of taxpayers, because I get this question a lot, when there is a mistake, who's responsible, right? Is it my mistake? Is it my preparer's mistake? Like, whose is it? And if you're relying on a written opinion, it's the same question.
1: Yeah. I mean, ultimately, there's, you know, the three prongs. There's If I screw up, I could make you whole out of a courtesy. I could make you whole out of, because I'm liable, or I could make you whole because maybe I contractually indemnified you under the contract for some unimaginable reason. Mm -hmm. If the client asks that question, I think I don't suppose they're indemnified in in any legal way. They probably don't have any form of insurance or contractual protection uh, unless their contract's otherwise. And so I think you're looking to, Probably to courtesy, most of these refunds happen. You know, if the tax return is filed late, I imagine even if it's the client contributed, sometimes the CPA firm will kick back the money to keep the client happy. And then what's left in, in, in the negative space of all these things is malpractice. And that is a huge area of law.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, and what's really fascinating about that whole, because I've talked to many tax practitioners about this, whether they're payers or, or attorneys. And one of the really fascinating pieces in all of this is, you know, we're, we're paid for advice. The advice is only so good as the facts and circumstances, right? So sometimes clients don't always give you all of the facts. Sometimes they don't know that they're not giving you all of the facts because there might be something that's really relevant that they didn't know was relevant, so they don't share it with you. I think that the idea that preparers or professionals are wrong Actually, does not happen so much as you would be led to believe with all of these notices? Because every penalty is not necessarily, as we've been discussing, is not necessarily the result of a purposeful wrongdoing. It could be confusion about facts and circumstances, not understanding what's reportable, being told by somebody that something is reportable when it's not. And when you talk about those transactions which don't have substance, my mind automatically goes to TikTok where some of those uh, videos that get two or three million views tell people that all they have to do is throw their home in an LLC, and then everything is a deduction. So it is really interesting the number of ways that taxpayers can get really bad advice. So do you have any suggestions as to where to look for good advice when you maybe are in this situation where you're not sure Like, we talked about rolling the dice. Like, do you have any suggestions for the best way to figure out
1: what to do? I mean, the first thing I'll say to to something you said a moment ago is uh, whether you have been wronged is not a legal question. It's a a religious and moral question. Whether you've been wronged in a way that you can recover in a court of law is, is, is a legal question. I think that there's no right answer to what you're owed in terms of diligence and responsibility by a person you're working with on anything. These are, you know, joint relationships. You mentioned the client not giving information and is it the client's fault for not giving the information or is it my fault for not asking? Because clearly I've had a lot of clients and by now I should know that if they didn't volunteer something, should I have asked that? There's no right answer to that question. right? But to your question, where do you get the good advice? Look, work with a CPA. I mean, that's, that's the best I can say people come to me, ask me questions. And I, you know, I often will work with my referral sources are attorneys and CPAs. And so I will say to people, look, it's like having a a physician who is doing the health and physical and and checking up on you periodically making sure you're okay before referring you, you know, to a surgeon or something. Mm -hmm. Have a CPA in your life because people, my clients who have that tend to be to get good advice.
0: And I would say that extends to a lot of different credentials too, right? Like, so EAs, there's like a wide path of that, but I think your point is just, you know, find somebody that you trust that knows what they're oh, yeah. talking I'm about. I'm not
1: casting any shade oh, on EA's, yeah, yeah, means. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, no, I didn't think so. And there's you know, attorneys that are preparers and, and and there's the filing season participants. There's a lot of folks who can, but I think the that the key, right, is to find somebody that you can trust to ask questions. Cause I do think that's where a lot of folks fall down. Like when I talk to people, because I do a lot of cleanup work. And when I'm talking to people, a lot of times it's just they they either didn't know. Who to ask initially, or they didn't know what to ask. And a lot of times it really is a miscommunication about what was reportable. And you know going back to what you sometimes you do think to yourself, well, I've handled a bunch of these. so it's like crypto.
1: I think the pitfall is that when people have access to a professional like this, then the question is how candidly do you communicate with mm-hmm. them? Yeah, because I think a lot of what I see is a client may have bad facts, hold them back. In the hopes that then that will induce the preparer to report the most favorable thing. Mm -hmm. And then they're kind of trying to whipsaw the preparer. Right. (laughs) Because they get the good return for a position now. And then when the virtual preparer files it and then they get the hit, then they say, Why didn't you ask me about my bad facts? Right.
0: And that's what I was going to say about crypto. I think it's very clear now with the IRS putting the crypto question on the IRS uh, uh, on the 1040 that they want preparers to ask about it. But, you know, five years ago, did they? Um, I would argue that five years ago, not all preparers expected to have clients with crypto, and now they do. So that is also evolving. And I think that, and I don't mean just crypto, but just generally, like there's always something new. There's going to be stimulus checks, you know, there's going to be child tax credits this year. Like, which things do you ask? It's a lot to take on. And I think that's why that we care so much about these penalties now, because there's a lot that can go wrong on a return. Like we want to talk about how it should be easy, but there's a lot that you mentioned the tax code is huge and complicated.
1: Yeah, I think this kind of illuminates sort of, of course, as as attorney or as, as a professional like yourself, we have these fiduciary duties and obligations to the highest standards for our clients. But in real life, there's a tension in that I often feel like, because like, for example, my number one service I provide people is issuing opinions, whether that's a written opinion, if that's kind of rare, but but more often, here's what the tax law is. And to the extent you agree with Heather Field that tax lawyers are, are those opinions constitute insurance, which is kind of a figurative statement, I'm giving away a valuable thing and it's at it's at my own expense. Mm-hmm. And so clients would love to have free insurance at my expense. And so I'm often cautious on the phone. Clients would say to me, hey, I want your tax opinion, but I don't want the long one. I don't want the 30-page the one. I just want you to tell me your opinion, and then don't charge me for the 30-page thing. And my, my response is, well, that the, the 30 pages that go along with the opinion aren't for you. They're for me. They're my condition for issuing the opinion. I don't issue informal opinions because that would be self-sabotage.
0: And that's the reason why when almost any any practitioner or tax practitioner that you ask a question, they're almost always going to say it depends, right? Because if these things were so easy, then you wouldn't be making that call to begin with, yeah, exactly. If somebody could get their answer in thirty seconds, the answer from you <laughs> in thirty seconds, they probably could have found it somewhere else as well. Like the reason that they're going to a professional, and this is something that I think the tax profession needs to be better at promoting themselves in this way. But the reason that you're coming to someone, to begin with, you may, you may say that you want the 32nd answer, but the reality is you want the right answer or as close to right as, you know, you can get to, to make sure that you sleep at night
1: and, and or, that can or, take or a little more time. Plus indemn- or the wrong answer plus an indemnity. Right, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's settle for the wrong answer with an indemnity in the form of malpractice lawsuit.
0: <laughs> exactly. So, you know, just generally speaking, because I, I think we probably uh, have scared enough taxpayers at this point. Um at, at just generally speaking, when you talk about the idea about these penalties and the defenses and strategy, and we've kind of talked a little bit about, you know, how, how a tax professional or do you have any words of advice prospectively for folks? This is something that I've talked about on the program before. Like, do you suggest, Do uh, you mentioned you network with a lot of uh, CPAs. Do you suggest to people that they annotate their records more? Clearly, like, do you try to give that kind of advice, or do you hope that the CPAs give that kind of advice? The EAs. I know you brought up the example earlier of the the credit card receipt, right? Like, not failing to not write who you were talking to and what you were talking about. Do you feel like if people had better prospective advice, it would result in fewer penalties, or do you think there would be just different kinds of penalties? Like, do you think that there's a way to reduce the number of penalties overall? Or do you think that when, because of the kind of system we have, it's just it's just a byproduct of the tax code?
1: Well, I think a lot of the penalties taxpayers get are not a function of the negligence of the taxpayers, a function of the negligence of the IRS. And so we have to then follow up and dig deep. And and just to prove, you know, for example, the IRS claims that, that oh, we we, we see you sold an asset and we see no evidence that there was any basis. So we're going to tax you as though we had a zero basis. And then you've got to follow up and, you know, that's not right. Right. And so, I mean, when you open this podcast, that's what I imagined you were you were probably referring to is that people people are getting penalties because the IRS hasn't opened the envelopes yet mm-hmm. or because of all those bizarre things. The only thing we can do there, I hate to say it, is to fund the IRS more because this regime of stiff penalties exists because the law is complex. It's hard to enforce, et cetera, et cetera. When enforcement becomes difficult, the, the law makes it up by making penalties harsher. But if we could give the IRS a bigger enforcement budget, then we wouldn't need to have these draconian penalties, and we could we could have penalties that were more reasonable. Other than that, to your question, I, I think I've given you citations for the definitions. I do not encourage the listeners to go read the citations because at you know on the bottom, negligence and reasonable cause kind of mean what you think they mean. Mm-hmm. Do your best, and then then you know you'll be fine, except for the cases when the IRS screws up, and then you can't help it. <laughs>
0: And then there's a lot of those lately, so yeah,
1: yeah. And communicate with your professional who who helps you because they are really alert to the penalties. They, you know, it's their job to know what they are and to avoid them and to keep them out of your life so that you don't have to think about.
0: It. Right. And and I hope what folks take from this is because I get a lot of folks who are just so scared to open the mail because they feel like there's nothing that they can do. Right. When they get that notice and there's a penalty. It just feels overwhelming. So I hope what folks get from this is the importance of working with tax professionals on a regular basis so that when you get those notices, you can pick up the phone and call and say, okay, this is what they say. What's the next step? Because I think that the paralysis that happens when you get a notice from the IRS is often a taxpayer's worst enemy because then you get the, the interest on top of the penalty. <laughs> You've started statutes running. At that point, things could get worse. But opening the mail and, you know, taking a breath and thinking like, what do I need to do? Are they just asking me for documentation? I have that. I can send that. Like you talked about basis. I can send that. This looks more complicated than what I think I can do. I need to reach out to somebody to maybe write a letter or an opinion on my behalf or reach out in some way to try to mitigate this. So I'm hopeful that that's what folks take from this.
1: I can agree with you. Yeah, I think that I think that when you get that letter, it's not all over. The IRS may have gotten the facts wrong, or you may be able to show reasonable cause or, or good faith. There's a kind of a scattershot, shotgun approach being taken, regrettably, on their side. And that means that just because you get a notice doesn't mean you can't fight it. Right.
0: Well, thank you so much. I think this has been really beneficial. If folks wanted to find you either on social media or on the web and you wanted to be found, where would you send them?
1: www.gradmantax.com.
0: Well, I will be sure to put that in the show notes. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app, so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.